Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dunn. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm and 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And this is a historic podcast. We have done two a week before, but intermittently, like if some of you will remember our electoral reform question time special or kind of urgent podcasts like the day Liz Trust fell from everything. We had a second podcast, but now we're going to do it regularly. And on the whole, we're going to use the time to interview people directly involved with some of the themes we explore together in our Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative at the beginning of each week. And I'm thrilled as the first in these historic podcasts. We're going to be joined by the Shadow Leveling Up Secretary of State, Lisa Nandy. And I've asked Lisa to take part for the uh, first one of these because, of course, one of the themes that us lot have explored through the months and years is can you level up? How do you level up? Urgently needed. What are the means by which you do it? We've looked more recently about whether Keir Starmer is right to seize the term take back control, to define this sequence of devolution plans. So let's hear from the person who will be responsible to deliver this if there is a Labour government at some point next year, as the poll suggests there will be. So Lisa Nandy and I got together to have this conversation, and this is what we discussed. Lisa Nanny, thanks so much for joining us. Could I begin by asking you, you gave a speech this week and afterwards you tweeted the biggest ever transfer of power out of Westminster with our Take Back Control Act. So could I ask you to sort of make the leap? I know it involves quite a few leaps. At the end of the first term of a Labour government, what will be the bodies, the agencies that have got power from Westminster, the Treasury, Whitehall, etc.? Well, I mean, if I could just take a, a full step back. From the, that big leap, yeah. That big leap, the, <laughs> the, 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 the garbled metaphor here. Um, <laughs> the thinking behind this is really that we've had 100 years of attempts to revive local economies, to get every part of Britain working, to turn around the fortunes of places that are struggling and to close the regional gap. 
But the reason that they've so often failed is because they've been seen as nice to have add-ons to whatever the government of the day was trying to do. We see the only route out of our national crisis as to get every part of this country working again and every place contributing to the country's economic success. At the moment, we've got a, a model that is virtually unique in a country like Britain, where we're trying to power a major economy using only a handful of people in a handful of sectors in a few small parts of the country. The country can't go on like this. It doesn't produce economic growth. It doesn't produce enough to fund decent public services. It's not helping us to make the leap to tackle climate change through the energy revolution. All of the problems that Britain currently has, whether it's falling apart high streets or the great waves of political and social upheaval that we've experienced in recent years, come down to that one central fact that we haven't, we've written off the contribution of most people in most parts of Britain. Now, we believe to turn that around, you've got to move decision making, resources and power to those places because the people in those places see the potential, the assets, not just the problems, which is what Westminster and Whitehall seems to say. So what does that mean in concrete terms? It means, for example, that mayors and councils working with their local businesses and civic leaders will be able to make decisions over the transport infrastructure they, they need, the skills that they invest in, their employment and training support that is provided, and work with private investors, not just to get good jobs back into those communities, but to be able to make the decisions about the infrastructure that's needed in order to support that private investment. So basically, it will be more power for local government. And mayors, obviously, and there will be more mayors, perhaps. So you have this patchwork now of combined authorities and local councils, some of whom work together in town deals in parts of the country, some of whom don't. We think that the greatest potential for local growth lies somewhere between that very local level and the regional level. So sub-regions like Greater Manchester are a good example of that, but... There are places that are nowhere near a major city, but have huge potential to expand and develop and invest if they had the right powers and tools to do it. So our offer to those places is come to us with the economic geography and the governance that reflects that. And we will hand over powers to all, not just some, in order to deliver on the economic growth strategy that you have. We we think that this country doesn't need one national growth plan. It needs lots and lots of local and sub-regional growth strategies based on the assets and potential that exist. To give you an example, you can build a world-class financial sector in London. You can't build a world-class wind industry. For that, you have to look to places like Grimsby and Fife. We're an island nation. It's absurd that we're not doing more of this. I want to explore some of those models in a moment. But while we're on that sort of pre-the leap to what a Labour government might look like after five years, it's very interesting that most opposition parties cite devolution as one of their big projects. David Cameron described redistribution of power, to quote him, as his big idea. Ed Miliband, actually, when he was leader of the opposition, said devolution was his big idea. Now, I know you have been personally committed for years and have been writing about how you revive towns in all kinds of different outlets um, when you were a backbencher, well before you got this brief. But you can see why some might 
worry that in practice, governments don't do what seems very attractive in opposition. Why are you sure this Labour government will be different compared to the others who pledged, quoting Cameron, a redistribution of power? Well, I suppose to, to, to continue quoting David Cameron, it, you know, we can't go on like this. I think there is a genuine recognition across all of Britain now that the country can't carry on in the state that we currently are. Nothing is working. Most things feel fundamentally broken. We've got an economy that people work harder than I can ever remember for people in my constituency in Wigan working two or three jobs just to make ends meet. And yet it doesn't work for them. It's not protecting the things that matter, good, strong communities where young people don't have to get out to get on and families can stay together and people have money in their pockets that they can spend on local high streets. Now, we're going to inherit a situation in 2024, should we win the next general election, that is probably going to be the worst economic situation facing any government since the Second World War. Rachel Reeves has been absolutely clear. There isn't going to be huge amounts of state investment. We're not going to borrow to fund day-to-day spending because it's people's money and they haven't got a lot of it. So we're going to have to think differently about how we do this. And any council leader across the country, any business leader across the country will tell you that when you're trying to get places to work and to grow and to thrive. You work across boundaries, you work across political boundaries, you work, you partner with businesses and private investors, you work across institutions like the National Health Service and the Housing Agency, you work with all of these people in all of these places in order to make it happen. You can't micromanage that from Westminster and Whitehall. So why do I think we're going to succeed where so many other people have failed? Because there is no alternative. It's not just that the economy fundamentally isn't working. It's that people have found various ways to show us over the last decade that they won't put up with this anymore. I mean, you've written about this, Steve, before. You wrote a book about the rise of populism and the rise of the outsiders. Well, these waves of political upheaval, whether it's growing nationalism in every part of the UK, whether it's the vote to leave the European Union, whether it was the dramatic rise in support for UKIP, all of these things have been driven by people feeling fundamentally that their contribution has been written off and written out of the national story and they won't put up with it any longer. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of the phrases that have been adopted actually by the right, which you're now taking back, actually have a kind of left of centre implication. We'll talk about take back control in a minute, but the left behind implies some agency is required to bring them back in and, and, and empower them. But one of the reasons, of course, why in government this presents problems is presumably you are saying that central government will continue to fund local areas as much now, perhaps uh, more if levelling up is to be achieved. But are you saying you will give total control to local authorities or mayors to decide how that money is spent? Because that's when the conflict begins, isn't it? That you say, well, hold on a second. The Treasury says, we're pumping all this money in. We can't just let it go. We need to have some control over how it's spent. Is that control going to go? And the councils will be able to decide for themselves how central government money is spent and invested. Well, the the current model doesn't work for anybody. Essentially, what you've got is metro mayors and council leaders shouting very loudly at government that they need some funding. The central government then hands over a grant, which usually has 
a lot of conditions attached to it based on yeah. central government's priorities, not local priorities. And the mayor will go, typically go off and spend it and then come back and ask for more. It's deeply frustrating for national government. It's deeply frustrating for local leaders who are begging cap in hand to junior ministers for small amounts of funding to do the things they know are needed. And it's really frustrating for local people because it means that those local leaders are accountable upwards, not downwards. They're accountable to national government. They're not accountable to the people they serve for the way that that money is spent. So where we want to get to and where we intend to get to after two terms of a Labour government is where local leaders have far more autonomy to be able to decide how money is spent in their own communities in pursuit of local growth, good, strong local economies and thriving, sustainable, inclusive communities. But there's a gap. There's a gap between how you get from where you are now to there. And that is the gap that so far nobody's managed to bridge because there isn't a tax base, a comparable tax base across most of Britain. So if all you do is unleash the the independence of those places, what you'll find is those places that have been falling further and further behind for the last few decades will fall even further and further behind while others will further and further ahead so you have to find a way to bridge that gap that's one of the things that we're working with local leaders on at the moment we're working with the LGA we work with councils of all political persuasions and with mayors as well but we think it can be done and recently I went over to Germany to see how they've done that much more comprehensively over in Germany one of the things they do is that every area has a presumption of regional equality so every region it's the same and that that money comes with very little strings attached you know can that translate into a british system not exactly but there is definitely inspiration from elsewhere it's a bit of a catch-22 isn't it because they've been doing that for years in germany and therefore have produced a whole range of experienced leaders here there are some brilliant council leaders there are some councils that aren't any good at all and then it's subjective as well you know you would disagree with some tory councils as a matter of sort of ideological difference. All of that can be bridged, you sense, that, you know, there's a classic thing that Tony Blair said in the build-up to the 97 election. He went to a local government conference and he said, we will give you more power as long as you use that power responsibly. <laughs> and there, <laughs> that's the tension, isn't it? Who decides what is responsible use of power? Yeah, I mean, we've got to move away from this cronyism and favouritism that's characterised the last few years on the levelling up programme. I mean, it offends me deeply that a child, a young person in Barnsley can't get a bus to an apprenticeship while a young person in Bolton can, just simply because ministers like the look of Andy Burnham more than they like the look of Ollie Coppard or Dan Jarvis. I mean, it's not acceptable that these powers are on offer to some places and not others. But there is a challenge, of course there's a challenge, about local leadership because for years local government has been hollowed out. It's been systematically stripped of powers and resources in order to deliver. And rebuilding some of that, you know, the, the one that comes up most often is around planning. And, you know, if you want to build good, sustainable places, you need a really good planning and architecture department. Well, these things have been systematically destroyed over the last decade. And every private investor tells us that the key ingredient for them in wanting to invest in a place is strong leadership and clarity of vision. If they know what 
local leaders are trying to achieve if they're certain that they're committed to it they're in it for the long haul and they can deliver it they will come and invest i think that can be achieved because i actually think this is a chicken and egg situation when george osborne created the mayors at first there was a bit of a skepticism about it but you've seen you know very strong uh, leaders emerging through those mayoral models because the powers have been on office of course, we've got Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, but there's some great work going on amongst Tory and Labour mayors across large swathes of the country because they have the powers to do it. It attracts people to come and, and do that. And we have got great leadership in some parts of the country that we can draw inspiration from. You can share the lessons of that with other parts of the country where they're struggling. But, you know, the thing that I most, most heard when I was in Germany is that there's got to be a, a, a strong ambition from central government to make yeah. this real. And the Minister for Eastern Germany, Carsten Schneider, said to me the other day, you know, the problem that you've got is that while we've taken two countries and turned them into one, you've essentially taken one country and turned them into two. And I think that is true. <laughs> I suppose on on that, if this is another sort of challenge, really, say you win at some point next year, uh, Labour have been out of power for more than a decade. There will be a sense of excitement that a programme, as explained in your election campaign, is about to be implemented. But central to that campaign is your agenda of giving power away. And therefore, I guess some of the national plans, say, say you bring back Shawstart as a Labour government policy, but some councils don't want to do it. It might be Tory councils. There won't therefore be that kind of, oh, wow, yeah, there's Labour government and it's happening around the country because you are arguing that different things will happen in different places because you're doing this historic transfer of power, which I can see all the upsides. But that, for those who yearn for a Labour government, is a big downside, isn't it? Because it won't be universal in a lot of these policy areas, or might not be. But what is universal is the outcomes. You have better public services that better meet the needs of the people who live in those places. You have good jobs and money back in people's pockets so that young people don't have to move away to work and find opportunity and to study but can stay and contribute if that's what they choose to do and families can stay together and older people don't have to grow old hundreds of miles away from children and grandchildren. I mean, this is the sort of legacy that a government that got this right could deliver, but only if it's ambitious about doing it. I mean, to give you an example, you know, in Cross Greater Manchester, we've got the very similar picture to lots of other parts of the country where because so much investment has gone into major cities and the industry and the mills, the mines, the factories and the steelworks has been lost from those surrounding towns, our towns have aged as our cities have become much, much younger. That means that the major healthcare priority in Manchester is around mental health because there is a crisis in mental health amongst young people. There are huge issues about dementia care and other forms of support for an ageing population in places like Wigan and Bolton, where the population is much older. But at the moment, we have this very uniform way of doing healthcare. Well, that's got to change. And we think with more local variation, more local flexibility, you can much better meet the needs of local 
populations. I remember going to Ipswich a few years ago to see an amazing community centre that was doing brilliant work with children, with with their mums and particularly with their dads. And it was totally transforming the outcomes for those kids. And there was an empty Shore Start building sitting next to it that had been locked up because essentially they didn't have the staff and the funding to run it anymore because the Tories had, had taken the funding away. And I, I asked them, why, why have we, you got a new Shore Start building next to this great centre that's been here for decades and the answer was because it was a uniform policy and actually if we just handed over the funding and said this is what we're trying to achieve we probably would have backed what already existed and helped it to grow the capacity to grow and it would still be there so I think you know I was a huge fan of Short Start I worked with Mm. children at the time in the voluntary sector and it was genuinely transformative but there are lessons to learn from what we got right and what we got wrong last time we were in government. One of the kind of devolved things that I th- think has worked really well, and I know from, you know, in the Northwest, Andy Burnham is always going on about how much better it is in London, but it was partly a structural thing. The mayor of London, the transport for London underneath the mayor, the mayor account- accountable for better transport, has transformed transport in London. And I know it's disastrous in Manchester and well beyond Manchester in the north of England. Could there be an equivalent? I mean, it it kind of worked because of the size of London and the underground in London and the buses and all the rest of it. Can there be a... I know Andy Burnham wants more power over transport and has done a lot with buses already. But could there be an equivalent there that sort of you have elected... It would have to be more than one, I guess, because this affects Liverpool, Leeds and other cities and towns in the northwest, northeast, where you have a directly accountable individual or individuals responsible for transport in the way that clearly has worked in London? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely could. And the thing that that already exists in the north of England and is very strong and very well developed is partnership working across not just local authority boundaries, but across regional boundaries as well. The big challenge that we've got in the north of England is buses, uh, which is an issue everywhere, and it's where most people are, but it's also the east-west connectivity. So it's far easier for me to get to London than it is for me to get to Leeds, which is absolutely extraordinary. And it's having a major impact on the economy of the north. You know, the truth is that if you'd handed over powers to the north to deliver northern powerhouse rail without constant interference from government, which is what we got when Transport for the North was given a bit more power to be able to deliver for a brief time, we would have delivered it by now. There's no question about it because all of the problems that we've got come back to that lack of infrastructure. And it's a top priority for every single local leader. I think Tracy Brabin was tweeting about it this morning because next week we've got the convention for the North. There'll be leaders travelling from across the country to attend it, but don't know if they can actually get there because the train... (laughs) It's so ironic, isn't it? I mean, we may just have to have it on a transportation (laughs) platform because it, it, you know, there are, I mean, in the north of England, you can't tell the difference between strike days and non-strike days because the trains don't run on either. I think you could absolutely deliver it, but I think there is a lesson from London. You talked about scale. And I think for us, the real holy grail is that there are parts of the country that within living memory powered the world and built this country's wealth and influence, coastal and industrial towns, they've been the places that have been the biggest losers from globalisation and from austerity. They're the places that we need to get working again if we're going to get our national economy working again. Now, to do that, you've got to think about scale. So, for example, 
Blackpool, really great place, but with huge challenges. If you draw the net a little bit wider, if you look at the economic footprint, there are jobs not just in Blackpool, but around Blackpool. And if you look at a slightly wider area and you start thinking about the transport connectivity, the housing infrastructure, the regeneration potential in that slightly bigger footprint, that's when the magic happens. The magic also happens, doesn't it? I I know and fully understand why you can't talk about higher levels of public spending as part of the levelling up agenda because of all the constraints in a build-up to an election. But in general terms, do you, I, I gather Andy Haldane, when he, the former Bank of England guy who advised Michael Gove during his first stint, I don't know whether he's doing any now, sort of broadly thought for levelling up to really work would involve billions in investment, trains being a classic example. They don't come cheap modernising railways. Do you accept in general terms, without making any commitments about specifics, that investment is part of this agenda? It is, but it doesn't all have to be state money. Some of it has to be money provided by government because you need the basic infrastructure in order to ensure that private investors will come and invest. But there is a willingness to do that. Just this morning, I was meeting with pension fund investors who are very, very keen to invest in things like social housing, for example, because it offers a good relationship with a local council. So it's a relatively stable agreement and it offers a steady return over a long period of time. And they're keen to do that in parts of the country that haven't traditionally seen homes built and homes brought up to standard for a very long time. In particular, this huge potential to do that in coastal seaside towns where you've got lots of old B&Bs that are no longer in use, where you could convert them into affordable social housing and provide decent, good quality homes for people, which is you know, part of the mix of what you need in order to create good, strong, thriving places and economies where that are destination places where people move to to work. So it's partly about ensuring that you lever in the right amount of funding. And that's about ensuring that the money that you do have from the government is spent well. At the moment, it is a bit of a mess. You've got this Hunger Games style beauty contest where places have to compete for little bits of money back that that has been taken from them over the last decade for things like car parks in Stoke-on-Trent and park benches in Stockport. But what you don't have is a proper strategy to align that to the economic growth in a place. So, you know, every department at the moment is making its own decisions. The Department for Transport is picking and choosing where it fancies putting a bit of money behind buses or behind trains or trams. The Department for the Environment is looking at flood defences across the country. None of that is aligned centrally with a national plan. So it's not just the Department for Leveling Up that's wasting a lot of time and money. It's right across government because there is no coordination. And I think one of the the key lessons for us of looking at Michael Gove's attempts to do this at very close quarters and Andy Haldane supporting him is that if the Prime Minister and the Chancellor aren't completely bought into the agenda, it's just not going to work. It's not going to be delivered. And I think if you listen to Keir Starmer, if you listen to Rachel Reeves and you listen to me, you can hear the same story being told about how we're going to do this in government. Of course, going on to the sort of language around this whole agenda, Keir Starmer has defined it as taking back control. And I think you've called it the taking back control 
or take back control bill. Now, there are some, I, I, can, I can absolutely see why he's done that. There are some who have said, oh, that sounds a bit gimmicky and a bit risky, highlighting the most vivid term adopted by Brexiteers in the Brexit campaign to define a key part of Labour's agenda, but nothing whatever to do with Brexit. Do you see or accept that there are some risks in seizing those words for an entirely different agenda? I don't, actually, because the reason that we did that was deliberate. It was deliberate because the vote to leave the European Union in places like Wigan was driven by this sense that things have not been working for people for a very, very long time. For a lot of people, it feels like the world is spinning out of control. There is no anchor. The things that matter most to them, you know, the good quality high streets, the pubs, the banks, the post offices, all disappearing. The bus networks are being cancelled. And it all stems back to this central problem, which is that good jobs in those places have been bleeding out of our communities, taking with them the young people, the working age population, the spending power, all the things that sustain a thriving local economy. And the answer to that is not to just hand out small grants from Whitehall for a liquor paint or a hanging basket on the high street. The answer is to start to rebuild the local economy because the high street is to a local community what the A&E is to the health service it's the warning light flashing on the dashboard saying that the fundamentally the system is broken and needs fixing and the government you know credit to the Tories they recognised the problem and they stepped into it with this slogan levelling up which propelled them to power in 2019 but nobody has seriously tried to make good on that promise of giving people back far more control and agency over their lives, their families, their community and their country. And we're going to do that. Do your constituents in in Wigan feel let down by the original use of that term? Lots of them voted for Brexit, presumably on the assumption that one way or another, they would indeed take back control. Now, given that you're now using the slogan, do you get the impression that they feel let down by what they hoped Brexit would be in terms of taking back control. They must do, or else you wouldn't be adopting it in a different sort of way. I think Brexit was one way of sounding the alarm on an economic model that was fundamentally broken and a political system that wasn't responding. But I don't think it was the only way. In Wigan, we had a huge and dramatic rise in support for UKIP in 2015 in a town Mm. that has run the far right out of town every single time they've tried to get a foothold for over a century. We lost a lot of people from participating in elections between 2005 and 2010. A lot of people just stayed at home. They, they were told that they were apathetic, but actually they were angry. And you know what's most curious to me is that in the 15 years since the global financial crash, it's been obvious to most people in the country that the economy isn't working, that we've got to think about doing things differently and respect that not just redistribute the proceeds of growth, but respect the contribution that most people in most parts of Britain have to make to that success. And yet the political system just hasn't responded. And this is us calling time on that decade of decay and and drift and saying, no, we're serious about making good on the, you know, this clamour for change that exists out in the country. Now it's a challenge for us. I won't I won't deny it because I don't think that the biggest challenge we've got at the next general election is the Tories. I think the biggest challenge is that 
after that decade of drift and decay, people have, a lot of people have lost faith in politics as a lever for change. And so we've got to give people hope that there's something better on the horizon, but we've got to make that hope convincing. And that's really what, for us, this work is all about. It's about showing that no more excuses this time, we're going to deliver it because there is no alternative. And, and finally, if you win, will you be Secretary of State for levelling up? Will you keep the term levelling up and, <laughs> and levelling up department and all of that? I could definitely do with a shorter job title. It doesn't, it doesn't fit on <laughs> the sticker at the bottom of the screen. Um, I mean, I don't really care what they call me as long as they get rid of the word shadow. That's I've had 13 years in opposition and somebody I was talking to, I took a lot to, you know, to both Tory and Labour, former secretaries of state who've tried to tackle this issue over many, many years. And somebody said to me the other day, I would trade 10 years in opposition for one day in government. And I know Mm. exactly what that feels like. It's been a long time coming. And we're not complacent about the outcome of the next general election. But we do realise how much is at stake, not just for Labour, but for the country. And you've got now the sort of hard grind of kind of preparing on the assumption that you may well win next time, which is which is a lot of work, isn't it? This full year before the next election, assuming it is in 2024, that's when the kind of hard grind really begins, doesn't it? It doesn't begin day one in office. It's now, I guess. So, uh, you know, the person I learned a lot about this from was Michael Gove, who in 2010 was the edu- incoming education secretary who had yeah. the Academies Act ready to go on day one. And that work had been done, the agenda was ready, and he had a plan for delivery, and he wasted no time in going about it. Much to my dismay, I was totally opposed to what he was doing. <laughs> in the yeah. damage. But nevertheless, um, if you want to get things done, you have to use the time in opposition in order to get ready. That's why Rachel Reeves and I were meeting with mortgage lenders just before Christmas. It's why this morning I was with Matt Pennycook, our shadow housing minister meeting housing developers because if you want to get houses built in the first term of a Labour government you've got to be having those conversations now because they need to lay the groundwork and that's we are deadly serious about getting into government this time but most of all we're serious on delivering because at a time when people feel politics has so little to offer I think this is a dangerous situation for a democratic country to be in and we've got to restore people's trust that politicians and politics can deliver real change in their lives. That means we've got to get it done, and that means we've got to start now. And as as we've been talking about, so many others have tried this and haven't delivered. It's one hell of a brief, but one that you must find deeply satisfying in the sense that it has been one of your great themes from, well, before you got into the Commons, but certainly since you got into the Commons as a backbencher. So in that sense, it must be hugely satisfying to have the chance to try and climb a mountain. And I think it is a mountainous challenge, but very fulfilling for you, I guess. I mean, if you get it right, then you could completely transform a situation that has been badly failing people for a decade and has been failing people in many parts of Britain for most of my lifetime, that would be an extraordinary thing to be able to do. And I I served as Shadow Foreign Secretary when Keir Starmer first won the leadership contest. I enjoyed every bit of that. It was a fantastic job. So if you weren't able to travel, which must be one of the great... (laughs) I made it to Hartlepool. (laughs) You got to Hartlepool. Only Shadow Foreign Secretary in history never to leave Wigan. But at least (laughs) make that joke for the rest of our life. That's Um, a good line. I I mean, you know, it was, you know, incredibly, incredibly rich 
job to do, an incredibly important job to do, if you think about the great global tensions and the challenges of rebuilding Britain without those strong global relationships. You touched on the EU. It's been a, you know, the the, the divisions across Europe with Britain have been a disaster for Britain and for Europe. And so rebuilding some of that was enormously satisfying. But every central, every problem, every challenge this country faces comes down to the fact that we've written off the contribution of most people in most parts of Britain. And I am determined that by the time I leave politics, we'll have sorted that out. Lisa Nanny, thanks so much for giving up your time. Much appreciated. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. So there we are. That was uh, Lisa Nandy in conversation about her brief, which, as I say, is both deeply fulfilling and if she pulls it off, historic, but it is hugely challenging. And it is interesting that, as I said in our conversation, other opposition parties have gone into elections claiming great ambition over this, but there's always been a sort of hint of ambiguity. She is not being ambiguous, but the mountain (laughs) remains in place. Anyway, look, thank you so much for tuning in to this, our first, second podcast. We'll all get together again very soon for our regular podcast, and then there will be another interview to follow next week. All right, look, have a good weekend if you're listening to this before the weekend. If you've had your weekend, I hope it was good. And let's get together very soon to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye.